This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich. Seven seconds to go. Three-pointer. Scott Phillips. <laughs> Covering game by game odds and futures markets. Thomas, Shake, Russell, Step Back! It's Outside Shots, presented by the Lions. This is the Outside Shots Podcast, the College Hoops Podcast for betting underdogs on a nightly basis. We're 30 point favorites. Apparently lose to Eastern Illinois. We're talking about you, Iowa. And of course, breaking down everything else you need to know on the college basketball odds board presented by thelines.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and leave a five-star review. And you'll have a chance to win an Amazon gift card. If you're watching on YouTube, give the video a thumbs up, subscribe and ring the bell to get notifications whenever a new episode is released. And the lines.com has also given away a $25 Amazon gift card in our daily college hoops pick'em contest. For more details, head over to play.thelines.com. Myself, Eli Herskovich, on Twitter at Eli Herskovich. Scott Phillips, my co-host on Twitter at Phillips Hoops, and the Lines on Twitter, lines.com on Twitter at the Lines US. Scott, for a week that doesn't bring a lot of Fun matchups to the table in terms of it's finals week for a lot of schools, or at least a lot of schools are on break in terms of the bigger games. The conference slate gets underway or next week and especially in the new year. But some surprising upsets this week before we get into the futures market, including what I mentioned in the beginning, Iowa going down as a 30 plus point favorite to Eastern Illinois on Wednesday. And believe it or not, that was the biggest college basketball upset this century. UMBC doesn't come close against Virginia. Granted, they were 20 and a half point favorites. So still pretty big underdogs, but not 30 and a half. And Stephen F. Austin, even when they upset Duke in the regular season back in November of 2019, was around, I want to say, 20 plus points as well or range. So Iowa's loss yesterday, even without Chris Murray, was definitely alarming for the Hawkeyes. Yeah, absolutely, Eli, particularly when you look at how Iowa handled Iowa State without Murray, and they were able to do pretty much whatever they wanted against a pretty established Cyclones team. So, you know, for me, the defense is really what's concerning about Iowa, giving up 55 points in the second half to an Eastern Illinois team that ranks in the bottom five of Ken Palm. I mean, woof. I mean, I know some sluggishness happens in these matchups right here close to Christmas, as you mentioned, Eli. A lot of times, you know, a lot of the fans are, you know, just coming in kind of expecting some blowouts, not a lot of student presence, either on campus or in arenas. So it can be tough to get up for some games, but Iowa led this game 18 to 4. There's just absolutely no excuse for them to blow that kind of lead and that kind of halftime lead against one of the worst programs in the country. We've touched on how their offense, for as good as it's played in terms of limiting turnovers and getting quality shots, still necessarily isn't producing to the levels as expected. And, you know, when you're missing some key pieces like Murray and Connor McCaffrey, as they were last night, it's tough to come back when all of a sudden everything is thrown in your face and you have a lot of pressure on you. That being said... Eastern Illinois, baby. Panther power. <laughs> Let's go. I've had a few beers All at the right. Panther Paw in my day. What was the last time you bed down to Eastern Illinois? For people that don't know, <sighs> Scott and I both live in the Man. state. 
probably like 2012, I want to say. Like, it's it's a fun little college town in Charleston. Panther Paw, nice, nice establishment, as I mentioned. Pour some salt in the Bud okay. Light, as the St. Louis natives like to do. It's a weird thing, but they do it. But, I mean, yeah, this is a shocking, shocking loss, suffice to say. I mean, you have fans coming down to the Iowa bench yelling at players and saying, I am the coach now on some Captain Phillips <laughs> stuff. I mean, this is insane right now. Like, this this is the kind of loss that Iowa needs to pick themselves up from and figure out who they are. Scott, if you haven't been to Panther Paw in a decade, <laughs> you can't say Eastern Illinois pride, first of all. But you're right. Go back to your I can't. My mother and My mother-in-law went there. I, I've, right. I've got plenty of plenty of Panther pride. <laughs> Fine. I didn't know the, the family connection. I apologize. There. But to your <laughs> point, without Chris Murray, no Connor McCaffrey, we touched on it, even in the Wisconsin loss and the Iowa State win going back to a couple weeks ago, McCaffrey played a big role in both of those games. I know Iowa dropped the game at home to Wisconsin, but still played a big role in Iowa nearly coming back to win it when they made the late push to get that game to overtime in the first place. But going through some of the other games this week, notable games, well, on Wednesday, a couple of them being Cal blew out UT Arlington as a four and a half point favorite. That came without the transfer and Devin Askew, who seems to be more of a net negative for this Bears team. Don't really know what to call it in terms of an offense. By the way, Eastern Illinois ranks number 347, I want to say, on Kempom. So definitely bad, definitely a bad loss for the Hawkeyes, just going back to that game for a second. But Cal blowing out UT Arlington. UT Arlington, which beat San Francisco on Monday as a 14.5-point dog, won that game outright. Arizona State loses to San Francisco on the road as a a 2.5-point favorite by 37 points. So pretty crazy scores as... Again, a week that isn't supposed to be notable, definitely notable when you look at some of these results. San Francisco, the way Arizona State was playing defensively, they beat Creighton, but we don't know what to make of this Creighton team overall. And the Dons shoot over 50% from deep. Shabazz had a big game, and that's kind of what you expect in one of those upsets with a wide margin if a team gets hot from three, and Arizona State's three-point defense was also due to regress. But over to some of the notable things more notable things, I guess, besides fluky results on Wednesday's College Hoops card. Scott, looking at the national title odds board over at thelines.com, Houston still the favorite to win it all at plus 650. UConn next up at 11-1. to one. Go Huskies. UCLA and Arizona, both in the 14-1 to one range for the Pac-12. Long-term title yes. drop for that conference as well. No question. Texas, 14-1. to one. So a bunch of big 12 teams after the Pac-12. Kansas. 15 to 1, where they opened up at to begin the season. Baylor, 16 to 1. Kentucky as well, 16, 17 to 1. A lot to break down with the Cats here in a second. And a little lower down on the odds board, UNC in the 25, 30 to 1 range. So, Scott, looking at the teams that I just mentioned, which one stands out most to you? For me lately, it's been Kansas, Eli. I've touched on this a little bit in some past episodes, but the way that this offense is running right now, they might have the best collection of wings in college basketball. I mean, you look at Jalen Wilson, and he's the known guy. He's the Wooden Award candidate. He's obviously expected to do a lot of different things playing in that small ball lineup and playing the five and the four a lot of times. But it's been other guys, too. McCullers getting a lot more comfortable now. Grady Dick has established himself as perhaps the best three-point shooter in college basketball. And, you know, that perimeter 
perimeter group led by Dewan Harris is very, very tough and feisty on both ends of the floor. Now that Bobby Pettiford's back, Yusufu's gotten some good minutes in Pettiford's absence. I like what this backcourt brings to the table. There's still some frontcourt question marks. Obviously, against a team like Duke, when they're uh, getting outmatched on the interior, they made some adjustments and were able to rally in the second half. But, you know, there's going to be some times they're going to have to face some elite level bigs, uh, especially if you're looking at a deep NCAA tournament run. So those are some question marks for Kansas. But in terms of what their offense brings to the table, how quickly they get into sets, how they move the ball, how they're getting a lot of other guys involved and playing to their tempo every single time. I'm thoroughly impressed with this group heading into Big 12 season and, again, would maybe look at them as as a Big 12 favorite right now, given some of the question marks with Texas and the Chris Beard situation and with Baylor being a little bit up and down to start the season as well. Yeah, Baylor's defense, definitely not problematic, but not to the level that we're used to seeing under Scott Drew and more of the level that we saw during the, I want to say, yeah, during the COVID stretch when the year they won the title, I think in February, they had a stretch where or a span where they didn't practice a ton. That was the Macy Oteague team, Jared Butler. These names are just coming back to me on the national championship. Davian Mitchell, really, really athletic wings and athletic guards, but they didn't practice a lot that month. And this is kind of reminiscent to me of that defense. It's the no middle defense is, I mean, it's copied across the Big 12. We've hit on that another podcast, but we'll get to that more so with our guests coming up later on in the podcast. CJ Moore from The Athletic going to join us to talk Big 12 as we zip through the national title futures market. But yeah, Jalen Wilson's emergence as one of the better two-way players in college basketball from East Scott stands out. 20th highest steal rate, where you think about his offense and arguably the best wing of the country. McCuller has gotten his three-point jump shot back. It seems like you mentioned Dewan Harris's defense. Also, Edgefer off the bench because... Yes, he's been we a huge impact recently. And we saw it against Indiana. Granted, I don't want to call the Indiana result fluky because it was by double digits, but losing Xavier Johnson, which is a big loss for the Hoosiers, come Big Ten play, foot surgery, lost him in the first half. Huchifino, good guard, but you're putting a lot of pressure on him on the road at Kansas to at least cover, and they were five-and-a-half-point dogs had Indiana. That one did not work out, but... I don't want to say, again, Kansas got fortunate, but the Xavier Johnson loss, definitely notable for Indiana moving forward. But going back to Edgefer, we were expecting Ernest Uday to be the guy off the bench yeah. for Kansas or maybe finding himself in a position where Kansas is playing through him a little bit offensively as the season moves along. But Edgefer, not to say he's become a low post presence, but scoring-wise, so impressed with him. But what stands out to me, Scott, not with the Jayhawks, although they've been impressive last week and the blowout of Seton Hall. We don't really know what to make of the Pirates, and they don't really stand out in a upper-tier Big East Conference, and the middle-to-lower-tier portion of the conference kind of remains the same year over year as we saw with St. John's getting dissected by Villanova on Wednesday night. We'll touch on the Big East in a in a couple minutes. But UCLA, we mentioned Jalen Wilson, 10-1 to 1 of the Wooden Ward market behind Drew Timmy, plus 850. Zach Eady, the comfortable Near odds-on favorite at minus 134 over at Bat Rivers. Jame Hakez, though, 60-1 to 1 to win the Wooden Award. The guy behind him is Hunter Dickinson at 85-1. to 1. Can't believe Dickinson's. I don't even want to say the odds are, are low because 85-1 to 1 is still a long shot. But the way he looked against Armando Baycott, the way he's looked against talented low-post bigs, even against 
Arizona State earlier in the season. I mean, the guy just can't switch on ball screens, switch comfortably in big situations. He's getting dominated down low against a really good big man in Armando Baycott. But the way this guy talks on some of his podcasts, I think he needs to do a little work on himself before Michigan goes anywhere. Going back to Jaime Jaquez and the Bruins, he's 60-1 to in the Wooden Award market. UCLA with a third-rated Shot quality defense, 10th rated adjusted defensive efficiency per Kempom. So really impressed with UCLA's play. Really good guard play between Tiger Campbell, Amari Bailey, as we saw against Kentucky. Not so much. Don't really want to call the UC Davis result anything on Wednesday. But Jalen Clark becoming one of the best all-around defensive players in the country. Spacing the floor a bit as well. Shooting around or above 35%, I believe, from three. David Singleton is shooting well above 50% from deep or an above average rate from three. His efficiency is off the charts. Every time you watch UCLA or I've watched UCLA in the last week, it seems like every shot he takes is going to go in. Adem Bonus low post game is, and the foul trouble definitely concerned against Kentucky. So that's kind of the question mark for this team. Shot quality had the result in the Kentucky game at 73-71. UCLA won that game in actual real-time box score by double digits. So want to have some thoughts on that game in a second. But your take on UCLA for a team that I definitely had to adjust in my power ratings, have them top five currently didn't have them in that range last week. Yeah, I was wrong about UCLA, Eli. Plain and simple. I kind of wrote them off a little bit following the Illinois and Baylor losses. Some of the things that Mick Cronin had to say in press conferences about the the nature of uh, some of the egos involved with some of the players in his um, roster were a little bit concerning to me. But man, you respond with a win like that at Maryland, and then you go to New York and you beat Kentucky like that. I mean, that's an impressive week for this stretch of December, Eli. And again, they have so many different weapons that they can put on you. You mentioned Singleton and Jalen Clark's development. I think Amari Bailey still has room to grow as well. They don't turn the ball over. I mean, Tiger Campbell is what he is, but he's also running clean and efficient offense and getting a lot of his wings the shots that they want. You know, you touched a little bit on the bigs and the question marks with Bona and his ability to maybe battle some of the established front courts in college basketball, particularly Arizona's group with Balo and Sabellis. But there's a lot to like about this Bruins team right now. They've seemingly figured out their defensive identity. Their offense can get it rolling on you in a hurry. And, you know, you look at some of their schedules for the big, or I'm sorry, excuse me, the Pac-12. They've already beaten Oregon at home. That's one of the tougher matchups they'll face this year. And they end the conference schedule at home against Arizona State and Arizona. So some favorable scheduling there as well in terms of the early and late shakeout of the conference schedule. As long as they stay healthy, they're going to be right in the mix with Arizona there. Yeah, and I want to pull up over at thelines.com in a second the Pac-12 regular season odds because we brought that up. Jaime Jaquez's development offensively, his footwork, man, against Kentucky, against a very good defensive front court for for the Wildcats, whether it was Lance Ware and Oscar Shibway. I don't think he really went one-on-one against Shibway, but also Jacob Toppin. While those guys are definitely limited offensively, still really good defensive bigs, and his ability to get his own down low and his craftsmanship around the rim really stands out. He can hit that shot in the mid-range, can also space out defenses from three. But just pulling up the Pac-12 odds to win the regular season here, UCLA is the favorite at some books, and Arizona is the favorite at others. Arizona minus 115 at Caesars. 
and UCLA, the favorite at FanDuel, plus 125, while Arizona is plus 150. So definitely an interesting market as we look ahead here into conference play. Any thoughts for you on whether you would pull the trigger at around even money, let's say, for both of these teams, considering Arizona is favored at some shops and UCLA is favored at others? No, I'm staying away from this one for now, Eli. I think those two are the clear two favorites, but I don't know who's the better of the two yet. And it could come down to a simple injury in the middle of the season that sways two to three games that changes this market. Uh, Like I said, or like you said, you should definitely shop for this number if you have a good feeling on UCLA and Arizona. I'm looking at Bat Rivers right now. It's plus 125 for both. They have them even. You mentioned the disparity in some of the markets and other places for the Pac-12 as well. So that's the one I'm not staying with as uh, for right now. I don't even love the second tier teams like Oregon, Arizona State and USC. But yeah, for me, they're too close to call right now, especially given the numbers that we're seeing across the boards. So we hit on UCLA and the team that I mentioned, the score that I mentioned, UCLA knocking off Kentucky at the Garden in that second leg of the doubleheader. UNC's comeback against Ohio State, definitely notable. Tar Heels playing much better basketball now that Armando Baycott is healthy and they're playing truly inside out. But John Calipari is what's holding Kentucky back to me, Scott. Watching their offense, Cason Wallace needs to be the primary ball handler. Chris Livingston needs to play the four. I know Calipari seems like he's found something or is thought to have found something with Lance Ware playing the four and Chris Livingston playing the three. So Oscar Sheboy obviously at his traditional five spot, Severe Wheeler and Cason Wallace at the one of the two. But I think Severe Wheeler is much better suited to play off the bench. The spacing just isn't there. And then when you add Jacob Toppin into the mix, whether it's Toppin or Lance where at the four, you have no spacing. Livingston can shoot it. He came into his own in that UCLA game, can create second chance shots. I'd be much higher on Kentucky. And by nature, they're going to be in the 16, 17, plus 1600, plus 1700 to win it all because of the name brand unless they struggle a little bit, which could happen if Calipari doesn't figure out this lineup. But with the way Wallace is playing at both ends, you can't sacrifice his minutes. You can't have him coming off the bench. You can't have him playing at the two because you need a couple of floor spacers to me to make this offense really heim in Reeves and Frederick, who had a decent game against a mid-major earlier in the week and has seemingly found his shot again, at least in that one game. Calipari couldn't play him too much against UCLA because he was going for those bigger lineups to rebound the ball and allow Wheeler to push the floor. But in the half court, this offense is still stuck until Calipari makes the change to me. Yeah, I'm not a fan of this half-court offense at all, Eli, and we've mentioned this on previous podcasts and some of the shooting deficiencies of guys like C.J. Frederick and Antonio Reeves against high-major caliber competition. I mean, I think last night in that win over Florida A&M was the first time C.J. Frederick has, like, scored in the last couple games. Like, he can't even literally put the ball in the basket, and that's what he's there to do, so... Again, getting those guys involved, getting them open looks and making sure they're knocking them down is a gigantic question mark right now for this team. And for as good as Oscar Shibwe is and for as much as they can generate offense on the run and transition with their athletes, 
I still have major concerns, especially when you look at a team like Tennessee that might have the best defense in the country, the athletes that Alabama can throw at you and the waves of length that they have on the interior. And, you know, Auburn hasn't played quite to expectations, but they're going to be tough and feisty as well. So, you know, how does Kentucky beat those three types of teams in the half court setting in SEC games? That's the big question mark for me in terms of not only conference play, but nationally as well in terms of their national titles future. Right. And you look at turnovers I know they're still top 90 in turnover percentage but against UCLA it was a big issue 18 turnovers six of them from Wheeler and when he isn't providing that mid-range jump shot with two seconds left on the shot clock to bail out and anemic at times half-court offense for Kentucky I really think this offense is the only way this offense is really going to click is with Wallace Reeves Frederick or Frederick at the two Reeves at the three and then you go Livingston at the four and Sheboy at the five. I, I think Kentucky has a national title ceiling with that sort of a lineup. And maybe it really is Livingston coming into his own offensively and then Calipari will make the switch. But the fact that he's saying he is more comfortable with Livingston playing at the three, I know he could space it a little bit, just doesn't make any sense to me for a coach that has fallen back with his offensive structure. We saw it against St. Peter's. They were... I would say cluster bleep right now. They were truly <laughs> a mess against St. Peter's in the half court. It's carried over into this season. Obviously, the injury to Kellen Grady and that planet fascia has definitely played a role last season, but it's carried over in a different way, but still a floor spacing issue this year. You mentioned the SEC as a whole. Nick Smith and the right knee management, quote unquote, he's out for the foreseeable future. So we touched on the Hogs last week. We saw them play well against a Creighton team that's definitely been downgraded in recent weeks in the Maui Invitational. So much to watch for with Arkansas in SEC play. But want to wrap up our national picture conversation, looking at one conference in particular. I had on Creighton. Scott, let's touch on the Big East before we talk with C.J. Moore of The Athletic and dive much more into the Big 12 UConn overcoming his second half deficit against Georgetown. That was the first time the Huskies faced adversity. I know it was against a, a piss poor defense that the Hoyas have, but they came back in the second half. They didn't cover as 20 point favorites, 20 plus point favorites, but came back in the second half. Xavier didn't cover as a three possession favorite against Seton Hall. That game was also on Tuesday, but one outright in the final seconds. Villanova dominated St. John's in the second half, covered as. I want to say five, five and a half point favorites. Dixon wasn't super efficient, but had a big game against Soriano. What stands out to you most in the last week in the Big East? Was it UConn dominating Butler on Saturday and then facing a negative game script per se and coming back against Georgetown for the first time all season, still winning by double digits, which they've done in every game. What really sticks out to you with this conference in the last seven days? I think we can say that UConn's the heavy favorite at this point. I mean, they're facing, you know, minus 125 odds in some books to win the Big East. They've kind of established themselves as a national title contender. To me, the big question that we've had since the beginning of the season is who's kind of the second through fourth teams of the Big East. And that's reshuffled even in the last month or so. I know you're not as high as Xavier as I am, but I still think that they can do a lot of things offensively and will improve defensively over time. Villanova is obviously a completely different team now that they're starting to get a little bit more healthy and figuring things out. And Eric Dixon's been tremendous the last couple weeks. And, 
you know, Providence and Marquette are feisty as well. Uh, Creighton, when, once they get Kalkbrenner back, will obviously be a markedly different team, even with some of their shooting issues. But you know, to me, the big storyline is who's two through five. Uh, we know UConn's number one. We know that Georgetown and DePaul are at the bottom. <laughs> but who's who's kind of filling out the middle of that conference? And how many bids is this league gonna, going to see uh, you know, if some of these teams are being a little bit sluggish right now. One thing that you mentioned was Providence. I bet Calipari would love to trade Bryce Hopkins for Jacob Toppin. The way Bryce Hopkins dominated that game against Marquette on Tuesday, putting up 20-plus points and 20-plus rebounds. But, yeah, Xavier, my issue with them is offensively their ceiling is super high if Sully Boom is going to hit every outside jump shot known to man. <laughs> but defensively... <laughs> It's, Someone's bitter about the Georgetown marks. game. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's not let's not go there. He hit literally every three point shot in the second half when the Hoyas made their run, but they also missed Georgetown missed double digit free throws. So, and they're a decent free throw shooting team. So, I will not back off of my Georgetown bet necessarily. Villanova is <laughs> the team. UConn is the best team in this conference by far. We saw Joey Calcaterra have a big second half against the Hoyas. That was a huge reason why the Huskies were able to come back in that game. I will stick to my statement from back in November after the PK-85. Joey Calcaterra might be the most underrated transfer that we talk about in collectively in terms of the entire college basketball season when we get to March, when we get to late March. His ability, his shot making is absurd, and he provides them a a really good cutter as well in a motion offense that Dan Hurley runs. So that stood out to me against the Hoyas for a team that you kind of, you as in the Royal, you question who's the second option when Hawkins isn't hitting shots, when Sonogo isn't as efficient down low, when Klingon is matched up against a sizable Georgetown front court and isn't getting those second chance opportunities. UConn is so effective because they're able to create second chance shots like Texas, like Houston. When you have the ability to generate second-chance shots and play at your pace and turn opponents over, you're going to be able to dictate possessions and dictate the tempo throughout a lot of games. But going back to Villanova, Jordan Longino had a big game against St. John's, put up double digits. Cam Whitmore is playing very well off the bench. Didn't score it at an efficient rate against the Red Storm, but had 10 rebounds. His athleticism off the bench is why Villanova's ceiling is much higher than we expected. If you look at Big East odds, and they don't even have the guard that tore his ACL going back to the Elite Eight last year, and Justin Moore didn't have him in the Final Four game against Kansas. UConn, like you said, the odds-on favorite to win the Big East at around minus 150, minus 160. Then it's Creighton still at plus 400, even with this six-game losing streak heading into the Butler game. We're recording day of on Thursday afternoon. Xavier next up at plus 500. Then Villanova as high as 10 to 1 on DraftKings. Listen, you know I'm high on the Huskies. I mentioned my Huskies at the beginning of the podcast. I have a futures (laughs) bet on them to win it all. Even though they're projected as double-digit favorites against Villanova next Tuesday, I want to say, I'm probably going to bet Villanova in that game. The market is inflating UConn like we saw in the Georgetown game, even though the Hoyas are a mess defensively, going back to the Xavier contest that you hit on last week. So this Villanova team, when you get Justin Moore back in the fold, I think the ceiling is not a national title ceiling, but definitely another Villanova team that can make a run. And Kyle Neptune 
has pushed the right buttons. Health is a big reason why, but you get Cam Whitmore adjusted to this level of play as a freshman. He's a lottery pick. They're still very talented and could very well knock off the Huskies next week as pretty big dogs. Yeah, and Villanova's a very dangerous team if they have the lead, Eli. And part of the reason is that they're number four in the country in turnover percentage and they're number two in free throw percentage, shooting 83.3% as a team from the free throw line. So obviously a lot of these early season games, when they were figuring out rotations, when point guard play was a major problem, they fell behind and that was problematic for them. But if they're able to get a lead and hold on to it early, that's a tough recipe to come from behind if you can't turn a team over and they're making free throws. So that's something to keep an eye on as well. You mentioned playing at their style of play. Pace is a big reason why too. Their bottom, definitely. I want to say bottom 20 in adjusted tempo per Kempom. So very intriguing to watch. By the way, shot quality has that UConn projected line or their projection for the game at around seven. So it's Hmm. definitely single digits. So not the projected spread we're seeing, projected line we're seeing on Kempom. And by the way, shot quality bets is your home for smarter basketball betting models. The shot quality betting model makes projections based on expected scores, eliminating variability and increasing predictive accuracy. Ready to win more bets head over to shotqualitybets.com today. Going to talk with CJ Moore from The Athletic next on the other side of the Outside Shots podcast. You're listening to the Lines.com podcast network. Looking for the latest player props and the best betting odds from the top U.S. sportsbooks all in one place? Then join us right here every day this season for free picks and best bets from the sports betting experts you can trust. Check out the Lines.com NFL Megapod as Matt Brown, Steven Andrus, and Adam Candy break down every game for this weekend's football slate. Join the Coast to Coast podcast crew Mondays through Fridays as Nate Weitzer and Josh Lander bring you the best player props and game lines for Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL. And tune in to Beat the Closing Line twice a week as Nicole Russo, Mo Nawara, and Eli Hershkovich dive into NFL opening lines, plus special guests from the sports betting world. So subscribe, rate, and review to the Lines Podcast Network, the source you can trust to make you a better sports better. Back here on Outside Shots, presented by thelines.com. Going to switch over, transition over to the Big 12, talk with CJ Moore at CJ Moore Hoops on Twitter, staff writer for the Athletics College basketball coverage. What's going on, CJ? A little bit of a hectic December, more so of a hectic December in terms of one particular program in this conference that you probably expected headed into the season. Yeah, uh, didn't anticipate the uh, Texas storyline, but um, I, I think the the league's pretty good, and um, I'm not sure the top is quite as good as I thought it would be, but the bottom I thought was going to be pretty good, and bottom's probably even better than I thought it was going to be. I was kind of just playing around today. Like, how would I rank these teams if I were to re-rank them? And it's really, really hard because I had West Virginia as the uh, bottom team in the Big 12 in the preseason, and West Virginia is sitting at 18 at Ken Palm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just kind of nuts. Yeah, and looking at the Big 12 regular season odds to win the conference, Kansas the favorite pretty much at every sports book around plus 160, plus 180, then Baylor plus 220, Texas in the mix to win the conference regular season title as well at most shops, 
even the favorite, still at BetMGM at plus 150. Then TCU, West Virginia, like you mentioned, definitely a surprise. Offensively, Texas Tech, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, and Kansas State to wrap it up at the bottom. And like you said, the middle tier of this conference definitely better than most would have anticipated coming into the season. But looking at Kansas specifically, CJ, what's been the biggest difference for you or maybe the most unanticipated aspect of this Kansas offense? Because Scott and I harped on it at the beginning of the season and heading into the season where they don't have the David McCormick. They don't have the Azubuki. You're prototypical Kansas low post big to play inside out with, but Bill Self is still orchestrating this offense with shooters and Grady Dick. Scott hit on it earlier, one of the best shooters, if not the best shooter in college basketball. So how has Bill Self reinvented this Kansas offense this season with a much different format? Yeah, it's it's bizarre because if you look at post-ups for Kansas, um, I think I was looking the other day, they've maybe had like 25 on the year or something like that. Um, very, very, very low number for a Bill Self team. Um, you know, they only run like a post-up to just try to kind of as a surprise set every once in a while. Um, it's a team that's a lot like last year's team if you just took David McCormick off the roster because, you know, he's built this on big, switchable wings um, who can play with the ball and kind of play off of each other. And then, you know, all around a point guard, Dewan Harris, who can't really shoot but is a really, really smart player and gets guys shots where they need to get shots. And, um, you know, I, I think the key to this deal has been Dewan Harris has taken a step and is playing at a super, super high level. And, in, and right now in a ball screen, I don't know if it's necessarily the opponents they've played recently or it's Harris. I think it's probably a little bit of both. But, like, he is in such a rhythm – um, making reads out of ball screens, but it's also like Missouri and Indiana had like some trash ball screen defense. <laughs> so um, that that probably you know has helped Kansas put up some ridiculous offensive numbers lately. But he's playing out of his mind. Um, Jalen Wilson has you know obviously had a really good start to the season. Grady Dick doesn't look like a freshman when he shoots the ball because he shoots it with so much confidence and then but I, I think the reason they've played at a better level lately is um Dewan's been awesome Kevin McCuller's starting to get comfortable in this offense and then KJ Adams has been playing really really well as a as a you know roller a uh, guy who can short roll kind of make some passes um KJ's emergence here this last you know three or four weeks has, has taken them to another level because that was the concern coming into the season. What the heck do they do at center? Um, you know, who's going to win that job? I even wrote on opening night, I thought, you know, they needed to give Ernest Uday more more opportunities, and um, he put so much pressure on the rim because he's, he's such a vertical lob threat. But uh, KJ has been awesome. CJ, touching on Texas a little bit, they obviously had a lot of hype and a lot of momentum, particularly coming off of the Gonzaga win and the Creighton win. This Chris Beard situation has really derailed a lot of the promise that the Longhorns had, but where do you kind of see this team at right now, and, and what's their ceiling if Chris Beard is not able to return this season? I saw the you know, players are still going to be out there, and they're, they're some pretty good players. So um, I think Texas still has a shot to win the league. I, I you know, if, like Even knowing Beard, at this point, like let's just assume he's, he's out of the picture. Sure for this season. Um, you know, the rest of his staff is there. Um, 
the the players are still going to play pretty much the same way they were going to play otherwise. You're just, you know, you're, yeah, it's it's important to be missing a coach, but it is a team that has some experience. So um, I think they're like built to handle it possibly. You know, I, you know, I watched the Rice game and they struggled in that game, but Rice is also a really tricky team to play. Who's to say they wouldn't have struggled if, you know, Chris Beard was there? Probably not like they did, but uh, that would had to be in a wild day. But since then, you know, they take care of Stanford, played okay, beating Stanford by 10, and then uh, beat Louisiana, you know, Wednesday night by uh, 28 points. So that's a, that's a you know, Louisiana is not that bad of a mid, pretty good <laughs> mid-major team, and, and you took care of business there. So um, I, I think they're still one of the best teams in this league, and um, I would, you know, right now I'd put them two, and, and I think that if, if any team is, you know, you want experience if you're going through something like that, right? You want it, you want an experienced roster and they do have that. You do a terrific job of breaking down whether it's sets and play types over at the athletic when you did it for your Kansas, Missouri breakdown a couple weeks ago. I'm just curious for when Scott was specifically talking about beard and his ability to adjust when you think about Chris beard in March, one of the best against the spread coaching records in the last decade and really this century from a coaching standpoint and when you watch his ability to adjust in game how much do you think that holds Texas back come the tournament maybe a little bit but you know I think one reason Chris and and this is a theory so um you know I'm interested to see what you guys think of it but I think one reason Chris Beard's probably done really really well in March is the no middle defense and not many teams being used to facing that in season, kind of like a Jim Beheim zone um, always does well in March. Um, if you look in the Big 12, the conference has done really well in March the last handful of seasons. Um, Baylor's done really well, runs the no middle defense. Texas Tech's done really well, runs the no middle defense. Um, you know, haven't really seen it yet with Texas. Um, but could potentially see it this year. But in the Big 12, if I'm, I'm about to do a story on this here pretty soon. I've reported a lot of it. But, like, the Big 12 is really the only league that you see that defense a lot. Like, almost, you know, about half the freaking league runs it. <laughs> but outside of the Big 12, you don't see it a ton. So I, I think, like, not to take away from Chris Beard, he's, he's a really good basketball coach. I think it's been the system in part that's it's helped him – do really well in, in, in March and, you know, Baylor as well um, has won a lot of games in, in March since, since they adopted this, this defense. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, you touched on the no middle defense going around the conference. Baylor's no middle defense hasn't been nearly as effective this season. Is that partly personnel change? Is it something else that they're missing maybe with the lack of depth that they've had in the past? What are you seeing from this Baylor defense in particular and some of the answers that might be there that could help them down the stretch? To me, Baylor and Texas Tech have similar issues in that they don't have a lot of size. You know, their guards are small. And I think when that when you're really when that defense is really good, like let's take Texas Tech's roster last year. Um they're on the perimeter, they started six five, six six, six six. And the way to to challenge that nominal defense is You've got to be able to throw skip passes. And it makes it really hard when you're going up against, you know, an Adonis Arms, um, trying to throw those passes 
to to the other side of the floor when when you have you know five eleven guys contesting those it's a lot easier and so I think both Texas Tech and Baylor their defense just isn't nearly as good this year because th- those the, you know the the size on the perimeter isn't as good and um, I I do also think you know I'll touch on this in the piece that I I think people are starting to figure it out how to attack that defense more so than they ever have before. And you know, there's, there's, it's just more tape out there, more, more chances to study it. Um, but I, I do think when you have size on the perimeter, that really helps it. And that's what I think Texas Tech and Baylor are kind of missing this year. And uh, Baylor made some like little schematical changes, I think, right before Gonzaga. And you know, I, I know they're hoping that's maybe they, they kind of found their defense after Marquette just absolutely tore, tore it up. Um, against against them, but um, yeah, I, I I just don't think Baylor's doesn't have the dudes defensively they've had in the past. I mean, you look last year. Um, obviously, Jeremy Sohan. I I haven't been paying a ton of attention to what he's done with the Spurs, but I think he's in the rotation and playing a lot. That's a really really good defensive piece. He was awesome last year, and then um, oh the other the other kid, the big wing, uh, Kendall Brown you know, was a pretty good defender as a freshman too. So you lose those two guys, you lose a big, uh, you know, physical point. James McKenzie wasn't very tall, but physical. Um, You know, they just don't have the size quite on the perimeter they had a year ago. And, uh, you know, I I think that's shown defensively for them. Over to the middle of the pack, or I guess outside of the big three, CJ, TCU sitting around 60 to one to win the title, got Damian Ball back late in November. Eddie Lampkin has taken a big step of late. Mike Miles is one of the most prolific scorers in college basketball. We know what TCU's defense is, and with ball back in the fold, and with Shahada Wells, especially defensively, making his mark, but another ball handler for a team that really struggled with turnovers and free throw shooting last year. Free throw shooting still a bit of a concern for the Horned Frogs, but what's the ceiling for this TCU team now that it's fully together because of what the NCAA did to Ba, I don't know if you want to remark on that. But what's what's your perspective on the Horn Frogs long term? Yeah, I think if if you are someone who wants to bet this league and and, and bet um, games early in the conference, or uh, you know take a a team with some decent odds to to win the league, um, I would I would like that TCU bet because um, you know TCU right now is sitting at thirty eight at Kimpom. Um, I think TCU is a lot better than the 38th best team in the country. I think TCU is probably a top 15 to 20 team in the country. And um, when I, you know, I told you I was putting together kind of some how I would rank these teams right now. Um, for me, it's either TCU or Texas at number two. Um, so you know, I, I'm 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 pretty high on the Horn Frogs. It's it's kind of a similar thing as last year. Like the the concern with them is do they have enough shooting? And um, they're shooting 30.6% from three. That's not great. Um, but, man, they they've they can guard. And I like how the roster is put together. And, for you know, they just weren't the same team without um, Damian Ba. And, you know, I, I don't know that you could really judge them until he got back. And they're 5-0 since he's been back. So, um, I, I, I think TCU is a, a, a really good team. I like that roster. A lot of experience. CJ, West Virginia, as you said, 
last place in your preseason projection. Now they're 18th on Kempom. What's been the difference with this team making this early leap this season? We know that a Bob Huggins defense and the tenacity of this roster is going to obviously be there, but this offense has been way better than advertised so far. Yeah, they're actually making shots, <laughs> which is a bizarre thing if you watched uh, West Virginia last year. Like um, Eric Stevenson's been really good. Um, I didn't anticipate that Eric Stevenson would be this good. Um, Trey Mitchell's been pretty good. Um and, you know, they just have these guys that have been so many places. Um, Emmett Matthews, one of, you know, I, he's one of my favorites because Emmett Matthews was at West Virginia, left to go to Washington, and then came back to West Virginia. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, I understand with the, uh, you know, at Iowa State, Caleb Grill started at Iowa State, left to go to UNLV, and then came back to Iowa State. But he, he was following his coach. Yeah. This dude left his coach and then came back to his coach. Like what? And 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 Emmett Matthews, uh, you know, speaking of making not many people want to go back to Bob Huggins. We saw that with Sheboy leaving the program. <laughs> uh, crazy. And he's one of those guys, you know, suddenly making shots. Like he he made the last time he was at West Virginia, he made fifteen of fifty threes his last season there. He's already made fifteen threes this year, and he's forty eight four point four percent from three. Um, I don't know that that'll continue, but, like, they're actually making some shots. Uh, they guard. Like, Huggins' team's always guard. But um, that was a really hard team to watch offensively last year. And, you know, he, he went and Trey Mitchell, we saw at Texas, like, he had some moments where he was pretty good. And, um, you know, he's he's been pretty good so far there. And uh, Joe Toussaint, a guy who at Iowa I always thought had some ability but was kind of in and out of their rotation and um you know he's done well it's just like I didn't think you could take all of these guys that have been so many places and get them to mesh very quick like it's just hard to have that many transfers and, and be a good team in the big 12 um but kind of like Iowa State was able to do last year like for some reason it's it's hit for West Virginia and um yeah, it's 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 impressive because I, I I didn't see this coming. Obviously, since I'm the idiot that had him last, and I don't I wouldn't put him last today. Going back to last season as a better, I can't tell you how many times I bet on West Virginia as like a two possession underdog at home. They miss 15 layups. How many layups could you miss at a single game? <laughs> Their bigs could not finish. That was one of the most disturbing teams to bet on, yet I continue to do it. That's what betters do, CJ. They continue to want to hate themselves over the course of the season. But onto a team that has refined itself at both ends of the floor, seemingly in non-conference play as we get into the Big 12 schedule. Big game against Texas at home on, on New Year's Eve, projected to be a two-point dog per Kempom. Oklahoma had a big win against Florida earlier in the week. This is kind of the typical, prototypical Porter Mosier team that he had at Loyola. They play at a slow tempo, pace and space. They can make shots solid defensively. Grant Sherfield is playing much more unselfishly than he did at Nevada going back to the last couple seasons. He's playing more off ball. He's hitting big shots, and they were able to expose that Florida defense in that regard on Tuesday. So, Kind of similar to TCU, maybe less so in the national title futures market, but on a game-by-game -game basis with the Sooners, what's the ceiling for more of the same old, same old with a five-out Porter Mosier offense and a no-middle defense? 
Yeah, I think that somewhere middle of the pack, like if, if they finish five, that'd be a really good year. Um, I I don't think this roster is as talented as some of the other Big 12 rosters, but um, it's solid. Like the Groves brothers are, um, you know, continue to get better. Um, Tanner, I saw him at Big 12 Media Day, and uh, he had really thinned down. Like he looked like a – he didn't look like a different person because he's still – I mean, he's got a look, right? <laughs> but uh, he's he's really – you know, he had thinned down and his body looked better. Um, Grant, too, I thought, you know, because I, I saw Grant – few years ago when he was at Wichita when he started his college career um he's thinned out too I th- his his body looks better um he's been really good like he was the guy that I wasn't sure about coming in um I wasn't sure if he was a winner just because what you know he put up numbers at Nevada on good on teams with talented Nevada teams that just didn't win um and so you know I wasn't so sure about him um but shoot he's his efficiency numbers have been awesome um, they're the team, to be honest with you, like I haven't – I need to study a little bit more before I get a really good feel for them. I just, for whatever reason, have – you know, I, I watched a little bit of their um, Florida game the other night, but I just haven't – you know, when you lose to Sam Houston State on opening night, you get a – you know, you're, you're, you're kind of – you pick what teams do I need to watch, right? And when they <laughs> lose to Sam Houston State opening night, I'm like, eh, you know, maybe I don't really need to study Oklahoma that much, but – uh, been pretty good since then, and and hey, Sam Houston State, like um, one of the better mid majors out there. Like uh, speaking of betting, like if you're looking for a good mid major team to ride a little bit, like that that team wins and wins by pretty good margins. CJ, I don't know what to make of this Texas Tech team. They had the Chaminade special in the Maui Invitational, going one and two with the win over Louisville. Yes, I just took a dig at Louisville. That's one episode, one at least. <laughs> Um, but you know, they, they've been missing some pieces. Obviously, Bacho's been in and out of the lineup. Um, what do you kind of make of this team overall now that they're finally getting some pieces back and they're fully healthy entering conference play? Yeah, they're another team that I'm, I'm interested in. You know, I, I watched a decent amount early. Um, I, I was impressed after their Creighton game. Um, and I do think, you know, they've, Last year, offensively, you know, they, they needed a little bit more um, shooting and playmaking on the perimeter, and so they went and got Pop Isaacs and um, Davian Harmon, and that's helped. But like I said, their defense isn't as good because they're not as big. Um, Daniel Bacho has been a pleasant surprise. Like, I, I think he's been one of the best bigs in the league. Um, I know he's hurt right now. Well, I guess he did play the other night. Um, so, you know, it's important they get him back. Um, you know, obviously – or. They do have him back, so that's good. Um, obviously, they've got the, the the transfer that almost left, and then is back now. Um, you know, I don't know how he fits because they've already got you know their five is probably their best player already. Um, so that'll be interesting. But I, it's just not it's it's not the tech team we've we've seen these last couple of years. Like they just don't scare you as much defensively. Um, They've got some nice, okay players. The talent level is just not what it was a year ago. Um, so I think it's a middle-of-the-pack team. Um, you know, I'm sure that if anybody can get a defense to become dominant, it's Mark Adams. But um, the, the, the talent's just not quite what it's been these last few years. CJ, I'm going to let you wrap it up for us between what's the best conference in college basketball, some of the teams we haven't discussed, Oklahoma State, 
Iowa State, Kansas State. Again, middle of the pack, like you said, is just tremendous when you compare it to other conferences. So among those three teams that we haven't touched on, what's maybe a bullet point or a a key that you've seen so far in non-conference play that betters might want to hone in on come the Big 12 schedule? Iowa State, bet your unders. That's that's one of the um, hardest playing, best defensive teams in the country, um, but struggle to score. But, man, like, TJ just gets those kids to play so, so hard. Um, I think that's probably the best defensive team in the league. And um, Oklahoma State, another team that can guard, has a lot of size, um, but really struggles to score. I was just – I've been studying Connecticut these last few days, so I was just – right before this call, I was watching the Oklahoma State-Connecticut game from a few weeks back. And um, Oklahoma State just doesn't – Shot selection's not great, you know, offensively. just It's just kind of the same thing we've seen these last few years. Like, they can guard, um, and they'll, they'll get you on a certain night because, you know, some some days their defense is just going to, you know, like I know they beat Baylor, uh, what was a couple of years ago when Baylor was really, really good. Uh, the national title team, I believe they beat, I think that was Baylor's last Big loss, if I remember right. Yeah, so, um, you know, Oklahoma State's a, a – Tough team to play, but I, I, I think it was probably near the bottom of this league. Um, I think Iowa State's defense will, will win at some games and maybe kind of near the middle-ish. Um, and then K-State is is interesting. Um, you know, has kind of a big three in Marquise Noel, Keontae Johnson, and uh, Naquan T- Tomlin, um, who – you know, if people haven't seen him yet, he's he's quite the talent and a, a fun player to watch. And they guard and play really hard. Um, if there's an Iowa State last year, Iowa State, a team that like comes out of nowhere, one you got two candidates in the Big Twelve, I think West Virginia and K State. Um, so I'll, I'll be interested to see how high K State's able to finish in this league. But that's going to be a hard team to play because Tom's is a really really talented center and like a mismatch. Uh, I don't. Keontae Johnson's put up good numbers. I don't know that he's quite Florida Keontae Johnson. He's a little, little bit heavier than he, he was when he was there. It looks to me like, um, but he's he's still he can score in bunches. And then Marquise Noel, I've always liked him as a point guard. Um, his assist numbers have been crazy this year. Not shooting it great, but um, you know he's a hard guy to stay in front of. So K State will be a kind of a fun team to watch what what they become this year. CJ, if you're down to come back on the podcast, we'll have you anytime during conference play. That was awesome insight, man. CJ Moore on Twitter, at CJ Moore Hoop, staff writer for the Athletics College Basketball Coverage. Really appreciate your time, and Merry Christmas. I was about to say Happy Christmas, but I'm Jewish, so you kind of knew where I was going there, and uh, Happy Happy New Year as well, man. Really appreciate the time. Happy Christmas and Merry New Year. Nice <laughs> nice to meet you, Eli. And uh, Scott, it's good, good to see you, man. Great to see you as well, CJ. Thanks so much for coming on with us. Terrific Big 12 insight from CJ Moore of The Athletic. Great betting insight as well, not just on a team-by-team basis from a knowledge perspective as we get into conference play. But Scott, as we wrap this thing up, I, I do want to mention that I know for our Discord users, head over to thelines.com and join our our Discord betting channel. Haven't been as active dealing with some family stuff. So as we kick it into high gear in January, we'll definitely be different. But over this next week plus, trying to adjust 
mentally, but we'll get back to it. I'll get back to it, and things will be different heading into conference play. Scott, want to wrap it up, though, truly wrap it up. As Christmas is coming up, I mentioned to CJ that I'm Jewish, not that anyone really needs to guess about that. I was about to say happy <laughs> Christmas to CJ, but I still like Christmas music. I, I was with somebody, my ex-girlfriend, for a while that was Catholic. I spent one Christmas with her family, so definitely used to the Christmas vibes. I'm going to let you tip it off here as we conclude the podcast. Your favorite, or I'll give you top three, top three Christmas songs. I'm going to go with two. Sorry to not answer the question directly, but I have a personal favorite and then a family favorite, and they're both outside the box. Personal favorite, Dipset Christmas. If you're looking at a Christmas song that features Jim Jones and Jules Santana and the rest of Dipset, that's definitely up your alley because that's one of my favorites. Great chorus. Family favorite, Dominic the Donkey, which is super underrated in my opinion. My daughter loves it. My wife loves it. More of an Italian Christmas song. We're not even Italian. We happen to just enjoy it. Uh, Again, a lot of these Christmas songs to me get redundant. You hear the same ones over and over and over again, (laughs) whether you're shopping or, you know, just at family events or you happen to be in the car and you have a Christmas station on your nearby dial that's, you know, playing the same stuff over again. So I like some of the more off the beaten path Christmas songs. And those are two of my favorites. I'm going to see, I don't even know those songs, so I can't really, (laughs) can't really bounce off of them. How about all I want for Christmas is you. It's probably the one when you were referencing it kind of be in the, the song that's oh, played God. over and over Just... again, but at a bar at a, well, okay, let's not, let's not go that far, but at a bar, if you're, if you're dancing, if you're drinking, I mean, that's kind of my reference point to this song. And that's the only one that I can really go with. So I'm going to go corny cliche ish. <laughs> I got to go. All I want for Christmas is you by Mariah. See, I apologize, I... Scott. I like listening to All I Want for Christmas is You at random times in the year. If you put that song on at a bar in June, you're going to see some interesting stuff happen at that point in time. But I don't, I don't want to hear it around <laughs> Christmas. I, you know, you hear these same songs over and over again. Mariah Carey makes millions of dollars every single year on that song alone, which is insane to think about because of all the streams that it gets. But I mean, it's kind of ubiquitous everywhere you go. It just seems to always be on. And for me, I'm all about pushing new Christmas songs to the forefront. There's a lot of great Christmas songs out there that we need to start pushing out there more. Again, my two favorites, Dipset Christmas, if you're a hip hop head, and Dominic the Donkey is a family classic that you can play for all ages. Those are two that never let me down. You mentioned that Mariah Carey gets some money. Whenever All I Want for Christmas is You is played, I think you're getting some money by referencing those songs. Not (laughs) once, Scott, but twice to conclude the podcast. But that is Scott Phillips. You can follow him on Twitter at Phillips Hoops. Follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich. Follow the lines on Twitter. We'll talk to you in the new year. Hope you all have a great Christmas, a happy Christmas to you all, and a happy new year to you all. Enjoy the food. Enjoy the Mariah Carey songs, and good luck with your college (laughs) basketball bats. Happy holidays, everybody.